Welcome to Parallel Worlds, audio issue 13, September 2020, the best of this month's Parallel Worlds magazine, expertly recorded. Superheroes, the modern Western mythology. In 2019, Avengers Endgame became the highest grossing film of all time. The finale to Marvel Studios' primary Avengers storyline, it marked an unprecedented high for the superhero genre of popularity. But this was no overnight phenomenon. Ever since the creation of characters like Superman and Batman in the 1930s, superheroes and their nefarious adversaries have been household names, instantly recognisable by their distinctive costumes and catchy titles. While the characters are widely known as heroes, the details of their stories are usually known only by dedicated fans of comic books. In a similar way, the gods and heroes of ancient cultures, such as the Greeks and Norse, were well known and often invoked to provide protection, good fortune or strength. While the names of Heracles, Perseus, Odin and many others would have been widely recognised, the intricacies of their tales would likely be known mostly by storytellers or priests, kept as cautionary fables or inspirational ballads. In this think piece, we'll be looking at just how far these similarities go and to what extent the superheroes of comic books can be considered a modern mythology of the West. Most superheroes are instantly identifiable by the design of their costumes, or even by a signature tool or logo. The stylized W of Wonder Woman, the red, white and blue shield of Captain America, even the green goblin skateboard-like glider all serve to make their characters instantly recognisable without them needing to appear in full. These symbols and objects are so iconic that they often come to symbolise the traits of their associated characters. For instance, Superman's red S evokes ideas of strength and excellence, while Batman's black and yellow emblem speaks more of cunning and subtlety. On the more practical side, such symbols, objects and outfits generally serve quite a mundane purpose. Being a largely visual medium, comic books rely on their characters having distinctive silhouettes and colour palettes to avoid confusion. The Flash's lightning bolt antenna served to easily distinguish him from Firestorm, another red and yellow clad DC superhero, while also keeping to his theme of being lightning fast. At the other end of the spectrum, the Hulk and the Thing both possess similar physiques, but are differentiated by their unique colour schemes of green with purple and orange with blue, respectively. Symbols have always held a degree of meaning, and what is intended as a means of identifiability often evolves into something more. The emblems and tools of superheroes usually come to symbolise the ideals they embody, a practice which can draw parallels with ancient cultures. Mjolnir, the legendary hammer of the Norse god Thor, was a symbol in common used throughout Scandinavia pre-1000 CE. In fact, the stubby inverted T-shape of the Mjolnir amulet is still recognisable and arguably one of the most famous Norse symbols. The hammer was often used as a blessing of protection, prosperity or fertility with particularly common use in weddings due to the tale of Thor disguising himself as Freya to retrieve Mjolnir after it was stolen by giants. Of course, Thor, his hammer, and indeed the entirety of Norse mythology, has been repurposed into a modern superhero series by Marvel Comics. But more on that later. Some stories of myth, like Thor's retrieval of his hammer, are still widely known today. In Greek legends especially, the Twelve Labours of Heracles, or as his name is so often anglicised, Hercules, Theseus and the Minotaur's Labyrinth, and Perseus slaying Medusa are particularly recognisable. While the broad strokes of these stories are often widely known, specific details are often overlooked or forgotten by many. 
The exact nature of each of Heracles' twelve tasks, for instance, or Perseus's preparations to fight Medusa by acquiring various godly artefacts, are aspects of their stories more likely to be known by scholars of classical texts than by the everyman. In the same way, superheroes often have obscure elements of their stories that the uninitiated would not know about. The Joker is widely recognisable as Batman's nemesis, but only people with a deeper interest in DC Comics are likely to know about his origins as Red Hood, while the adversary of Marvel's Hulk, the Red Hulk, is mostly unknown by people who haven't read the comics. Additionally, many such stories find themselves being retold by new writers and artists, and while key aspects remain the same, the tone, atmosphere, and even specific events are drastically different. The Joker's origin, for example, has at least three different versions in print, with even more in the various film and TV series featuring the character. The X-Men team of superheroes, in particular, are victims of cross-media reboots and inconsistencies. Since 1963's X-Men 1, the core team of mutants in the series have been changed and rebooted several times. Fan favourites such as Wolverine, Nightcrawler and Storm did not appear as primary members of the X-Men until 1975, with the reworked team in Giant Size X-Men No. 1. The films, starting with X-Men in 2000, also take on a different route to the comics, though one is heavily inspired by them. Notably, X-Men Days of Future Past, released in 2014, saw elements of the previous films retconned due to time travel, a theme also prevalent in the comics. However, despite the various reboots, resets and retcons across X-Men media, certain core elements and themes have always persisted. The idea of mutants being rejected by human society is always at the heart of X-Men stories, with the X-Men themselves striving to peaceably achieve understanding and unity with humanity under the guidance of Professor X. Meanwhile, their nemesis, Magneto, takes a more aggressive approach, leading the mutant supremacists the Brotherhood of Mutants. From this general premise, themes of racism, diversity, paranoia and oppression have been explored in hundreds of different ways. Many figures of myth have suffered the same inconsistencies as the X-Men, due to differing tellers and translations, but they also often served as fables exploring common issues of the human condition, like the X-Men retaining certain contentious themes. Aesop's fables are perhaps the most well-known of such educational stories, but they are far from the only examples. According to Greek legend, King Midas was punished twice for his greed, first by losing his daughter in his arrogant wish that everything he touched would be turned to gold, and second by having his ears replaced with those of a donkey after he offended the god Apollo. Midas thus acts as a cautionary tale about selfishness and respect. Conversely, in Norse myth, the god Tyre lost his hand when the gods tricked the terrible wolf Fenrir into imprisonment. Fenrir had suspected a trap and asked one of the gods to place the hand in his jaws as a sign of trust. Tyre volunteered himself, knowing he would lose his hand, but that a great evil would be stopped. Because of this, Tyre and his missing hand became a symbol of courage and self-sacrifice. But, in contrast to these more serious and moralising characters, tricksters and mischief-makers were also common. This archetype of character was present in many ancient cultures, such as the Norse Loki, the Greek Eros and Hermes, and the Chinese Sun Wukong from Journey to the West. All these characters were irreverent pranksters, who often used their great powers to cause chaos for their own amusement, though generally without any malice behind their deeds. Sun Wukong, in particular, was known for his lack of respect for traditional powerful figures, such as Buddha and the Jade Emperor, while laughing off their attempts at chastisement. In the world of comic books, a similar figure exists, first appearing in 1991 by the name of Deadpool.
Also known as the Merc with a Mouth, Deadpool is renowned for his irreverent and often adult humour, as well as his fourth wall-breaking and often parodic stories. He fulfills a similar role to the classical trickster archetype, possessing great power, but using it mostly for mischief, or to humiliate other heroes. His ability to degrade well-respected characters like Wolverine, coupled with his often outrageous actions, such as seducing Death herself with his supposed immortality, can be seen as parallels to the cheeky cunning of Sun Wukong. Both characters often unintentionally provoke serious crises by enraging powerful figures, while also going relatively unscathed by the consequences of their actions due to multiple layers of immortality on Wukong's part or a phenomenal regenerative capacity on Deadpool's. Sometimes the parallels are more than merely thematic. Marvel's Thor and DC's Wonder Woman draw their inspirations directly from Norse and Greek myths, respectively. In the case of Thor, the Norse deities are presented as powerful and advanced aliens from the world of Asgard, which was the home of the Ezio gods in Norse myth. They view their advanced technology as magic, so while outwardly they use what appears to be primitive weaponry and armour, it is enchanted with force fields, energy blades and so forth. Other elements are further converted into technologies such as Bifrost. This was the rainbow bridge which allowed travel between the nine realms of Norse legend. For Marvel's purposes, the Bifrost is a long-range teleportation device. Meanwhile, Wonder Woman is not such a direct translation of Greek myth as Thor is of Norse. Her real name, Diana, is a reference to the Roman god for Artemis, goddess of the hunt and the moon. And she is the daughter of Hippolyta, queen of the Amazons, and a significant character in the story of Theseus. In DC's comics, the Amazon warrior women of Greek myth continue to live in the archipelago of Themyscira, far from all mortal civilization. Like Marvel's Asgardians, they are superhuman beings, though they hold entirely to the faith in their gods, the ancient Greek ones. Wonder Woman is said to have been blessed by the entire pantheon, and it is through this power that she can perform her heroic deeds. In both cases, aspects of the original legends have been reinterpreted in various ways, both big and small. Thor's hammer, Mjolnir for example, is a gift from Odin in Marvel's comics, rather than a creation of the dwarves as in Norse myth. And while one woman certainly follows several tropes common amongst the classical Greek heroes, she is not a full analogue for any particular figure. Nevertheless, the spirit of both mythologies has been kept alive through comics. That such legends were used to create superheroes speaks volumes about the similarity of themes and ideas between the ancient stories and the modern. Even disregarding the overlap of characters like Thor and Wonder Woman, there are many similarities between the superheroes of the 20th century and the legends of ancient civilizations. Whether coincidental, such as the symbolism present in both kinds of stories, or intentional, like their fable messages, the comparison is surprisingly easy to draw. Who knows? Perhaps, in a thousand years' time, scholars will study the mythic sagas of Batman or the Avengers alongside Homer's Odyssey. Let's Rogue Trade, role-playing in Warhammer 40,000. Warhammer 40,000, usually called 40k, has experienced a huge growth in popularity in recent years. Originally a miniature-collecting, wargaming, model-painting hobby, there are now more ways than ever to engage with the forever war of the grimdark far future. Over the 30 or so years since 40k was first conceived, Games Workshop, the British company behind the Warhammer brand, has not been shy of experimenting, branching out with board games, running live gaming events, hosting the Golden Demon Painting Awards, licensing a plethora of video games and developing a library of novels. 
there's even a live-action TV series in the works. The origins of the 40k universe are, probably unsurprisingly, also rather experimental. Back in 1987, Games Workshop published their first sci-fi rulebook, Warhammer 40,000 Rogue Trader, written by Games Workshop alumnus Rick Priestley. The densely packed, wonderfully illustrated rulebook described a dark and pessimistic far future of eternal war and had a rather pulpy sci-fantasy over-the-top feel that lightly satirised many aspects of contemporary science fiction. The rules it laid out were part tabletop role-playing game, part massive-scale army simulator, and part DIY wargaming adventure. Even in 2020, this first version of the 40k universe will be familiar to Warhammer fans. It's a fascinating look at the earliest iterations of all the major factions, and it's a delight to see how much, and how little, has changed and evolved over the intervening 30 years. From these complex and relatively free-form beginnings, Games Workshop continued to refine the ideas underpinning the game. A few years later, the second edition of Warhammer 40,000 was sold as a box set containing two armies of miniatures, rules and dice. Everything a player would need to dive right in, and the same formula is still used today. While playing with these grand armies is great fun, the 40k universe is more than just glorious large-scale battles. Through the novels and supplementary lore stories that coexist with the various games, we find out how people who aren't in these massive wars live and work. To explore this smaller aspect of the universe, Games Workshop and Fantasy Flight Games teamed up to publish a series of pen-and-paper tabletop role-playing games that allow players to explore the 41st millennium as relatively normal individuals. Dark Heresy, published in 2008, allowed players to take the role of Inquisitor Acolytes, tasked with purging heretics, aliens, and mutants that threaten the stability of the Imperium of Man. The next game, 2009's Rogue Trader, cast you and your friends as the eponymous Rogue Trader and their most trusted retinue in command of a starship, with the freedom to adventure in the grimdark future in ways that no other 40k game can handle. Death Watch, published in 2010, focuses on your group becoming a high-level squad of powerful space marines, fighting the enemies of the Imperium on the edge of the galaxy. Black Crusade, published in 2011, flips the alignments and allows players to take the role of powerful bad guys, the forces of chaos, pursuing a crusade of tyranny across the Imperium. The final game, 2012's Only War, allows players to take the role of simple human soldiers in the disposable ranks of the Imperial Guard, where to survive more than a single day is a victory. My group chose to play Rogue Trader because of its association with the first edition 40k rules, but the series of role-playing games by Fantasy Flight generally use interchangeable rules and are usually presented in the same style as described here. When choosing character types, our players found it easiest to compare the character classes presented in the rulebook to the closest equivalents on the bridge of Star Trek's USS Enterprise. The major difference is that, unlike the egalitarian utopian crew of the Enterprise, Rogue traders in the dark world of Warhammer 40,000 are ruthless individuals, holders of a warrant of trade which allows them unusual freedom in the totalitarian Imperium of Man. Fantasy Flight's game system directly draws from the original Warhammer 40,000 Rogue Trader rulebook, reintroducing and updating the concept of these powerful individuals. Many of the less militaristic elements of the 1987 rulebook 
are updated and brought into line with the contemporary 5th edition lore of the 40k universe. The rulebook covers everything from one-on-one combat to massive-scale fighting between armies, even fleet battles and starship combat. Within the game structure, it's possible to procure a battalion of Astra Militarum, ferry them out to a war zone, fight off Orc raiders in combat, then land your troops and manage the battle on a global scale from a strategic command post, or delve in with your character at the front line. Equally, players more interested in character-driven adventures can make use of the extensive interaction skills, which can allow players to embark on a campaign of political intrigue, backstabbing, spying, subterfuge and diplomacy that affects a planet or dozens of planets. While people already experienced with pen and paper role-playing game systems will find many aspects of Rogue Trader familiar, a major departure from most role-playing game systems is that the players are not only expected to create and role-play skilled individual characters, as is normal in role-playing games, but also to manage the high-level running of a town-sized starship with thousands of crew. The ship serves as their home, transport, a vast weapon, and also a setting for shipboard adventures. The freedom players are given through the structure of the game is underpinned by the 30-odd years of lore and material that make up the Warhammer 40k universe. Players can expect to encounter any or all of the major alien races, fight with weapons familiar to the franchise, and generally live in the 41st millennium. As a role-playing game, the possibilities are only limited by the imagination of the group. All this freedom doesn't come without a few drawbacks, though. The core rulebook is pretty massive at 392 pages, and although generally it's well-written and the rules are quite intuitive, it's almost certainly going to be quite daunting to anyone new to pen and paper role-playing games. Fortunately, people wanting to just jump in and give it a go can take advantage of the excellently written starter adventure in the back of the core rulebook, or one of the many pre-made adventures published by Fantasy Flight Games. The core game is supplemented by no less than 16 comprehensive expansion books, six of which are campaign source books. When starting out on a new campaign, players will need to decide who is going to be the rogue trader. And again, unlike many other role-playing games, this is both a character class and the de facto leader of the group. As such, it's important to find someone who will embody this character well. Typically, a rogue trader is part explorer, part soldier, part negotiator, and often part pirate or privateer. They're uniquely tasked with pushing beyond the boundaries of the Imperium and making first contact with aliens, discovering valuable technology, founding new colony worlds, in the name of the Emperor, of course, and even occasionally delivering cargoes of supplies, troops and aid to the fringes. The second potential challenge for players is internalising the idea of the scale and scope of the setting. Each player functionally performs the role of a department head, managing hundreds or thousands of non-player character crew, and generally each player character will have certain responsibilities they are uniquely suited to. This can be scaled as much as necessary for the particular group. If the players really enjoy the simulation of living and working in the universe, the game allows you to dig into that as much as you like. If your group is bored by management and just wants to get on with the adventure, the rules allow for that too, by abstracting out the management parts to just a couple of quick dice rolls. The character creation follows what the book calls the origin path, a series of detailed multiple-choice options that determine where in the 40k universe that particular character grew up and how they got to where they are now. These choices all come with advantages and disadvantages, so even if two players in a group want to play the same class, 
They'll almost certainly start with different skills and traits governed by their unique origin path journey. In addition, the origin path creates an interesting opportunity for intersecting histories. If two characters choose Shiplorn as their trial and travail, for example, it creates a natural opportunity for those two to have met in the past during that terrible starship disaster and formed a bond. While the origin path approach to character creation is unusual, gameplay itself follows a format that will be familiar to role-playing game players. The group will need a games master, who creates and arbitrates the adventure and plays the role of the non-player characters, while the rest of the group play the explorers. The rulebook has plenty of tips for both experienced and budding games masters, and overall it's a pretty easy game to get into, even if at first it feels like a steep learning curve. Our group started by focusing on the individual characters. A short adventure got us used to the rules for moving, shooting, interacting with non-player characters and that sort of thing, before later expanding into the crew management and larger scale activities. Once you've got the feel for the basics, scaling it up and down dynamically to evoke the varying scales of the challenges facing the crew can be done pretty seamlessly. The rule set is based around a D100, or percentile dice, made against numbers defined by the characteristics of a character or situation. For combat, damage and a few other things, a D10 will be needed, but on the whole the game is relatively dice-light. Sadly, Fantasy Flight and Games Workshop parted ways years ago, and the only way to purchase these books now is digitally through www.drivethroughrpg.com. That's D-R-I-V-E-T-H-R-U-R-P-G. The downside of the PDFs can be that, especially for the Games Master, there's a lot of cross-referencing and flicking back and forth to do during the game, especially early on when you're learning the rules. This can be clunky and tiresome with a PDF. Other than that, the digital rulebooks are nicely put together. Finding a copy of the actual hardback book would absolutely be an advantage, if for no other reason than they're really nicely designed with some great artwork. Overall, our group has been enjoying adventuring in the world of Warhammer 40,000 for ten weeks now, and we've barely scratched the surface of what's possible in Rogue Trader. The flexibility of the game system means that when the crew is a little tired of exploration, a jaunt on board a frontier void station resupplying the ship provides a lot of fun role-playing opportunities before venturing back out into the dangerous Coronas expanse in search of fortune and fame with bolt pistol and power sword in hand. Remember, in the grim darkness of the far future, there is only war. Classics of Science Fiction, Dune Here's a sci-fi scenario for you. A young man stands under alien suns. He's a messiah figure. The planet he's living on is a ball of sand, rock, sun and danger. There's a mystic order who wear robes, aristocracy in space and a bunch of conniving asshats who don't like freedom or hope. Which franchise am I referring to? It's 1965's Dune, obviously. The novel's so inspirational, every wannabe wordsmith in the genre has taken something from it, consciously or otherwise. There's a strain of sandy DNA in every sci-fi book published after Dune, to the point of crippling child support payments. Genetic metaphors aside, Dune has an enduring legacy that belies how obscure it is in the pop culture ecosystem. The number of people who've bought a copy and failed to finish it is staggering. So why is such an influential work so underread? 
Simply put, everything that made Dune an enduring classic has been ruthlessly plundered by successive generations of authors and filmmakers. Hardly a bad thing, of course. The rich ideas present in Dune, and its sequels to a lesser degree, simply cannot be curtailed to a single series or prescribed to a single author. But what makes Dune most compelling to me, and many others throughout the years, is the idea of false sainthood. Paul is engineered to be a messiah figure, through generations of scheming, manipulation and murder, and yet he turns out to embody every aspect of his own legend, which begs the question of whether he should be called a messiah at all. It's a scathing takedown of personality cults, and an examination of colonialism that still resonates today. Few of Dune's successors bothered to include these aspects, and they're all the poorer for it. It's a matter of cultural context that makes Dune so original compared to its contemporaries. Although he was the cousin of Joseph McCarthy, Herbert profoundly disagreed with the latter's policy of blacklisting suspected communists. One of the main themes of the Dune saga is a distrust of charismatic political figures, a concept that resonates now more than ever before. Even his invention of the Bene Gesserit, an order of mystic Jewish-coded nuns, was a revolutionary move in an era where women's representation in science fiction and fantasy was mostly lacking. Also, they're way cooler than Jedi. Just saying. There are also the three Dune films to consider. One was never made and is legendary anyway, one is yet to be released, and the other has Sting prancing around in his underwear, which makes it legendary for a different reason. Lynch's version is bizarrely endearing, but arguably the sheer scope of Dune and its setting could only feasibly be adapted with modern technology anyway. That or an absolutely staggering budget, which would have seen it make an epic loss running against that lovable underdog, Star Wars. Frank Herbert occupies that weird cultural blind spot alongside Michael Moorcock and Fritz Lieber, authors foundational or massively influential to their chosen genres, and yet relatively unknown outside of their fandoms. Dune references are now being made third-hand, with pieces of media referencing something that referenced Dune without realising Dune was being referenced at all. But more than an important foundational brick in the edifice we call science fiction, Dune is simply a very good adventure story. It's a true epic in the mould of something like The Count of Monte Cristo, a fantastic story of betrayal and revenge told against one of the most memorable and haunting backdrops in the genre. Read it if you haven't. Games Masterclass. They know more than me. One of the things I always dread most about acting as Games Master is encountering the player or players that know more about a subject than I do. It's almost inevitable that each player will know more than me about something, so it's sadly a dread I have to face frequently. It ranges from annoying when the point of contention is largely aesthetic or doesn't really matter, to infuriating when it's a detail that you've decided to hang a plot on. How should Games Masters handle these disagreements? And as a player, how should you best rate a correction? There are two primary areas where the player might know more than the Games Master. Setting information or rules knowledge. Many of the solutions are the same, no matter the root of the problem. However, there's one vital thing to keep in mind, and it's something I've highlighted in earlier articles. You're either playing the game with friends, or, at least, with people you'd like to be friends. 
A player correcting the Games Master is usually an engaged player that's trying to help to make the game better for everybody. How to handle these disagreements so that they don't escalate out of proportion is something that you need to think about and address before it becomes an issue. Unless you've created your own, there's always a chance that somebody will know more about your chosen setting than you. If it's the real world, a great deal of information about places, time periods, politics, science and so forth is available on the internet and can easily be researched by the keen. Some players don't even need to do any research. They have expertise in a topic from existing experience or interest. If you're using a published or licensed setting or creating your own based upon an existing media franchise, like a series of novels, movies or comics, then players may simply have read more of it than you have. Sometimes you might want to restrict how much of a setting is considered canon in your campaign. For example, you might say that anything in the Star Wars movies is okay, but the novels aren't. This could help, but it won't solve all of your problems. These two sources of player knowledge, recent research or personal passion, may seem like they'd lead to the same problems. Knowledge is knowledge, no matter how it's been acquired. However, the impact that it can have on a player's immersion in your campaign can be staggeringly different. The player who's simply done some quick reading of Wikipedia before or during a session is far less likely to care about something being wrong than a player that's devoted a significant portion of their life to the topic. For the former, a simple comment that the setting is different, or that you aren't using that aspect, can settle the matter swiftly. Sometimes the detail in question might be something you want to take away and think about, but it probably doesn't matter too much. But for the other type of player, something that's wrong about their area of expertise could throw them completely out of the narrative. Perhaps they're a historian, a sailor, or a physicist. When they provide more information or more correct information than you do about the time period, the parts of the ship or the problems required to enter orbit, that can be difficult. This writer's wife is an archaeologist. Campaigns featuring ancient Egypt are now a running joke between us. These are the differences that you probably can't simply brush over. The player in question cares about the topics or is familiar enough with them that each time the aspect comes into play, they'll feel that disconnect with your narrative all over again. It can be tempting to avoid any topics that you worry might cause an issue, but that can be limiting in terms of your plot and world building and miss an easy way to build engagement with the player in question. A better answer is to have a conversation with these players, ideally before the campaign begins if you can, or between, rather than during, sessions when it comes up if you can't. Acknowledge their expertise and that you won't be able to do enough research to come close to them. Apologise in advance for any mistakes that you might make and ask that they not correct anything during the session itself. However, do recognise that they may find these mistakes infuriating and will need some way to bring them to you. Establish when that should be. After the session, when it's fresh, can be good, but late-night finishes could derail that plan. Immediately before the next session could be convenient, but might not give you time to take changes into account. Between sessions could be best, but that relies on you and the player having the time to do it. It doesn't need to be the same answer every time. You might want to take the next step and actively use that player as a consultant. 
If you're planning a campaign based on a company of knights, and you have a player with a degree in medieval history specialising in cavalry combat, that's a great resource. Speaking to this player frequently and taking their advice on how things would have worked can give you and your players a much more authentic experience. You may even wish to propose co-games mastering. That doesn't necessarily mean that the player helps you to run sessions, but they would help you to plan them. They'll know a little about what's going to happen going forward, but this slight drawback will likely be compensated for by the increased expertise and fidelity in your session, as well as the player being happier. In terms of the rules, there are two main issues at play. Firstly, as with setting, the player may know more than the games master, either through having played the game before or having read more of the books available in the line. Just as with settings, a games master may wish to limit which books in a line are available for use to reduce the issue. But that won't avoid the knowledge that comes with greater experience of the rules. Tabletop role-playing games usually have a large number of moving parts, whether you're playing a game that focuses heavily on combat, like Dungeons & Dragons, or one that concerns itself more with narrative, like Fate. There's a lot for anyone to keep track of, but with greater experience this does get easier. I'm not talking about incidental bonuses or penalties. Everyone forgets those. This is more an issue when a character has a far greater impact than you've anticipated. Perhaps an unusual combination of abilities has an unexpected result. It may simply be that you can't easily keep track of all the options that your players have available to them. A games master who's a natural planner might find it easier than one who tends to improvise their game in response to player actions. I'm the latter. But neither are infallible. Consider keeping copies of the character sheets to look up their abilities between sessions and imagine how they might interact with your plans. But if a player has managed to achieve something very powerful, you don't want to always plan around it. Let them have their win, occasionally. Or perhaps you have a player that's constantly correcting your use of the rules or trying to explain how they work. I'll admit, I've been that player. Sometimes they're just keen to share their love of the game, or it could be down to honest misunderstandings of how the rules work. Don't forget that they may not be right. Or perhaps you decided that you like a particular setting, but its rules are more complex than you prefer, so you chose to engage with less of the game than your player expected, but weren't clear with them at the start. Just as with setting... The first step is a conversation. If you're trying to use the rules and a player thinks you've made a mistake, acknowledge the point. Remember, they are probably trying to help. Quickly, think about how much impact the correction will have if you make it immediately. Is it something you can account for easily in your head, or something that'll mean you have to restat all the enemies you've created? Is it something that advantages the players or the monsters, or would both be impacted equally? If it can be made easily, and making the change would advantage the players, it's probably worth doing. If not, explain that you'd like to just move on for now. You don't want to kill the session's momentum to have a detailed discussion of the rules or pause to restat. But afterwards, make sure you understand what they think you did wrong, and check it before the next session. Read the book, check errata if necessary. Perhaps ask online for advice from other games masters and players of the game. Once you feel that you fully understand the issue, then you're in a position to decide what to do. 
It doesn't really matter if the player was right with their correction. I don't think I've come across a game that doesn't include an invitation to change its rules if you want to. Maybe you like the rules as written, and will continue, or start, to use them. Maybe you don't, at which point you can have a conversation about a potential house rule, a topic large enough for an article in itself. It's always an option. Either way, at the start of the next session, address the issue. Discuss how you'd like to handle it from now on, rules as written, or perhaps the way you were doing it before. Some will insist that you should play the rules as written, but many will be happy to use whatever you want, as long as everyone has the same understanding. Exactly how you'd like these issues to be raised is something to discuss with your players as early as you can, ideally during session zero before the campaign begins. This will vary for different games masters, so go with what you're comfortable with. Some will be perfectly comfortable with it being pointed out publicly at the table. Some will prefer it to be an email sent between sessions. If this hasn't been discussed, but you as a player feel there's something you need to correct, it's best to err on the side of caution and bring it up privately. A correction can come across as a criticism, and most people would prefer that to be in private rather than in public. You may feel that it's vitally important that you bring it up immediately and in context, but it's still probably best to wait if you can. Only if it might impact on how you want your character to act might it be worth bringing it up immediately. For example, if a set of rules your character relies on don't work how you'd expected in play. Even then, best to check with the Games Master first. Hey, I have a quick question about that. Can we talk about it now, or would you rather it be after the session? And as Games Masters... We need to learn to accept these things. As uncomfortable as it can be, we're all going to make mistakes. We're all human, even the games masters. And we'll make mistakes even if we've written the material ourselves. The most important thing is to move on and not let your mistake become a bigger problem than it truly is. Because really, it isn't that big a problem. Twin Peaks, what did I just watch? The legacy of Twin Peaks has echoed across the past 30 years so pervasively that someone watching it today for the first time is likely to find it hauntingly familiar. But is it still good in 2020? Warning, this article contains spoilers. Twin Peaks was so iconic during the early 1990s that its visual and storytelling influences spread into other media even in the slower-moving pre-internet age. Contemporary TV shows such as The Simpsons, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Northern Exposure, Beverly Hills 90210, Sesame Street, and Saturday Night Live, to name but a few, all featured subtle or not-so-subtle homages and references to the weirdness of Twin Peaks. Even today, 30 years after it first aired, it's still being cited as either a direct or indirect influence on a huge number of modern TV shows, films, music, and video games, especially those that delve into eerie, surreal, or weird themes. At the time, there was nothing else like Twin Peaks. It broke conventions, defied genres, and created a buzz amongst audiences that had a life of its own. 
TV in the 90s was limited to a relatively small number of channels, and there was no on-demand viewing, no streaming, no personalized viewing preferences. Major studios ruled the networks, and it was a risky business breaking from established patterns, leading to a culture of conservatism that discouraged experimental creators. Writer-director David Lynch, creator of Dune, Blue Velvet, and Eraserhead, and writer Mark Frost, the creator of Hill Street Blues, stepped into this arena with an idea for a TV detective drama series with a twist. Lynch was already an established Hollywood filmmaker, known for his experimental and often innovative approach to writing and directing. Frost came from the critically acclaimed police procedural Hill Street Blues, and it's likely that this creative combination reassured the executives at ABC that making something a little bit different was a risk worth taking. In 1990, viewers sat in front of the TV to meet FBI Special Agent Dale Cooper, played by Kyle McLaughlin called in to assist local Sheriff Harry S. Truman, played by Michael Onkin, investigating the murder of teenager Laura Palmer, played by Cheryl Lee. Cooper discovers clues that lead him to believe that this murder is linked to a case from the year before, and that lead him to believe that the killer lives in the town of Twin Peaks. Cooper takes a hotel room in the town to investigate further and this formed the main narrative pillar that kept people tuning in week after week to ask, who killed Laura Palmer? The filming locations for Twin Peaks evoke both grand-scale isolation and a small-town community feel. Cooper, and by extension the viewer, are isolated from the real world almost immediately and sucked into the interwoven lives of the peculiar residents of Twin Peaks. Sweeping visuals of hundreds of miles of forests, vast waterfalls, and the eponymous mountains, combined with the haunting soundtrack composed by Angelo Baralamenti, impose a mysterious, unsettling, and otherworldly vibe. All this starkly contrasts with the down-to-earth progression of a standard police investigation into a grisly murder. None of this was accidental. The show was deliberately designed to be off-key and took delight in disorienting its audience, subverting expectations and unapologetically breaking the mold of established police procedurals. In 2020, the ideas behind Twin Peaks may not seem that extraordinary, but that's mostly because Twin Peaks paved the way for things like The X-Files, Riverdale, Supernatural, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Lost, Dark... Stranger Things, Haven, Fringe, and so many more. Many of these shows have and will influence other media, and so the bloodline of Twin Peaks remains strong. While it would be an exaggeration to say that Twin Peaks is the direct spiritual forerunner of modern TV, Lynch and Frost's work on the series undoubtedly helped create the ecosystem that our modern media exists within. Despite this overwhelming cultural success, many people, both then and now, find Twin Peaks to be a dense, odd, and confusing mess of a TV series, particularly the second season. From the very first episode, viewers picked up on the famed weirdness of Twin Peaks, even before it became explicit in season two. 
Agent Cooper is the viewer's surrogate, and he meets the townsfolk, and through his witty, charming, and unswervingly process-oriented approach to investigation, we ride along as he peels back the layers of Twin Peaks. The frame is established as a police procedural. Cooper starts questioning Laura's friends, family, her boyfriend, all the usual suspects. By episode three, it's clear that this town isn't quite normal and that there's a curious mix of oddities piling up. Episode 3 is known as Zen, or The Skill to Catch a Killer, and contains a scene that cemented Twin Peaks' place in history, Cooper's Dream. Agent Cooper turns off the light in his hotel room and settles into bed after the day's investigations. The scene fades to an aged Dream Cooper sitting in an armchair backed by blood-red curtains. The floor is an eye-bending, zigzagging, black-and-white pattern, a man with dwarfism wearing a suit that's the same color as the curtains, played by Michael J. Anderson, twitches oddly with his back to Cooper, who is sitting passively in the chair. The dream flashes through a montage, including an iconic image of Laura Palmer's blue-skinned, plastic-wrapped corpse and fades into a monologue from a man with one arm, played by Al Strobel, who explains in a slow, resonant voice, The magician longs to see One chance out between two worlds Fire walk with me We lived among the people I think you say convenience store We lived above it I mean it like it is, like it sounds. I, too, have been touched by the devilish one. Tattoo on the left shoulder. Oh, but when I saw the face of God, I was changed. Took the entire arm off. My name is Mike. His name is Bob. All this is cut with strobing lights and odd, otherworldly droning sounds. We then see the denim-wearing Bob, played by Frank Silva, hamming it up against the industrial backdrop of pipes and valves, saying, I promise I will kill again. This sequence ends with the ring of candles burning around a pile of dirt and then fades back into the mysterious red room from the start of the dream. Laura Palmer, very much alive, sits smiling at the older Cooper from a chair opposite him. The man in the red suit, later called the man from another place, and the arm, turns around in a disquieting way, opens his mouth, and says, Let's up in a warped and distorted voice, which is subtitled because it was so distorted. The disquieting speech uttered by the man from another place and Laura Palmer herself was achieved by having them learn their lines backwards. Every word and action was performed in reverse and then played forward. This lends the entire scene a creepy and unsettling vibe, amped up by the odd pacing, the long silences, and creepy shadow that passes over the curtains in the background. The man from another place gets up as jazz music begins to play and dances across the floor. 
The woman approaches Cooper, gently kisses him on the lips, and whispers something in his ear. Back in the real world, Agent Cooper wakes up with a start. With that, TV history was made. According to Lynch, this was an unplanned scene that came to him on the spur of the moment. His trademark surrealism broke the surface like an eldritch beast, and Twin Peaks secured its place in the gestalt of media history. The dream does two things for Twin Peaks. It pushes the investigation into a new direction, and it opens the door for all of the weirdness that follows. This surreal overlay exists through the whole first season in direct contrast to the relatively mundane events that take up most of the runtime of each episode. There's a definite soap opera vibe to the interactions of the townsfolk, and that's what makes these occasional blips in reality all the more compelling. Aside from Cooper's investigation, the townsfolk are going on with their normal, highly convoluted, and often criminal lives. There's corruption, bribery, domestic abuse, lies, plots of murder, mostly unrelated to Laura Palmer. There's a secret brothel, at least one secret society, individuals who are certainly eccentric, if not outright unhinged, and much more. These other plots stretch back long before Laura's murder, and essentially formed the world-building of Twin Peaks. Season 1's eight episodes end, rather shockingly, with Agent Cooper being shot by an unknown assailant in his hotel room. Season 2 picks up right there with Cooper lying, bleeding on the hotel room floor, then seems to metaphorically wink at the audience and say, I know what you're here for as a ghostly apparition known as the Giant, played by Karel Strykin, appears to give Cooper four highly cryptic clues. The Giant's clues contain the famous line, The owls are not what they seem, repeated by several characters through the series from here on out. This out-and-out, otherworldly being that unapologetically pops into existence in many ways sets the tone for season two. This isn't going to be a subtle blend of intrigue and oddness. This is turning the weirdness dial up to 11, then breaking it off. Season 2 is considerably longer at 22 episodes, and suffers for that. The murder of Laura Palmer is solved, or at least laid to rest, by episode 9. This functionally ends the core intrigue of the mystery that's kept the series pushing forward. Lynch and Frost say that the intention was for other plot lines to take the foreground and provide the motive force for the series to continue. In reality, Season 2 feels far more disjointed, surreal, and more conscious that it's being watched by an audience waiting for that next water-cooler moment. The oddities and weirdness are much more front and center. Bit-part characters pop in to deliver cryptic lines and offbeat clues that seem to go nowhere and feel like they're dropped in just to tease the viewers. There's an undercurrent of desperation as Season 2 progresses, leaving viewers to flounder around in too many disconnected threads and many strange things with too few answers. The main cast are left to hold everything together, with a lot of the heart of the show relying on the audience simply caring about Cooper and a few key characters. That's not to say there aren't things to enjoy in Season 2, and there's still the shadow of what made Season 1 so compelling. It's more that, as a whole, 
and particularly after the resolution of the Laura Palmer case, the season just doesn't work. It's no longer good TV. ABC chose to shelve Twin Peaks after the staggering drop of ratings during season two, and despite a small but loyal fan-driven letter-writing campaign, it was not renewed for a third season. In a 2017 interview with TV Line, David Lynch is quoted as saying, The pilot is the only thing that I'm particularly extremely proud of. There were great moments along the way. The second season sucked. It's a surprise that in 1992, Lynch teamed up with Robert Engels, a writer credited with several episodes of Twin Peaks, mostly in season two. The pair created Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, a prequel film. Despite many of the TV series cast reprising their roles, the film didn't do well at all. Fire Walk With Me seemed to be the final nail in the coffin and the end of the Twin Peaks phenomenon and by 1993, the audience had moved on. Other than the VHS and later DVD released, the occasional reruns and underground cult following, Twin Peaks seemed to be over. A significant entry in the history of influential media unlikely ever to be continued. Despite repeatedly disowning most of season two for over 20 years and complaining about the direction that the studio, key actors, and maybe even the Owls, forced him to take in Twin Peaks, Lynch liked it all enough to double down on Season 2 and create an even more surrealist Season 3 in 2017, otherwise known as Twin Peaks The Return. The 18-episode series, which is, in reality, an 18-hour mind-bending indie art film, received critical acclaim and multiple award nominations. At the time of writing, it has an aggregated critical score of 74 on Metacritic and 94 on Rotten Tomatoes. Viewers also highly rated the series, giving it an 8.6 and 82% respectively. Digging a little deeper into the reviews reveals an interesting trend. Both critics and viewers tend to be highly polarized. Either it's rated extremely poorly or exceptionally highly. A lot of the reviews praise the artistic style, the extreme weirdness, and the unconventional approach to making a TV series. The negative reviews tend to focus on the storytelling, the themes, the narratives, the acting, the characterization, and overall entertainment value. It's hard not to consider the possibility of Twin Peaks The Return being something of an Emperor's New Clothes situation. If it's much hype than an amazing return of a cult classic, It must be modern TV masterpiece, right? It's undoubtedly a highly artistic creation, but does that actually make it good TV? If you're sitting down to enjoy a slightly surreal police drama, how much surrealism is acceptable? Undoubtedly, Twin Peaks rightly deserves an honored place in our consciousness. It deserves periodic rewatching, both for pure entertainment and also critical analysis. Season 1 is undeniably brilliant television, and the franchise as a whole planted seeds we are still seeing germinate today. Whether or not it deserves to be listed as one of the best TV shows of all time, though, is highly debatable. (laughs) 
Acid, Chapter 5 It was time. Denica knew it was time. She swam in an ocean of scalding clouds. She was falling rather than swimming, but somehow the downwards motions translated to the same effect. Venusian atmosphere swirled past her as she swam, her arms cutting the clouds and swirling them away like smoke. The acid atmosphere stripped away layers of flesh, and the pain was exquisite, perfect. One powerful stroke cleared away a thick bank of clouds raining tiny silverish drops of metal. Below, shining in the sunlight, was capital. Seen from here, in the ever-dawn light of the long Venusian day, she saw how beautiful and how fragile it was, like a glass bubble of life. Denica sat in the great island's ancient central park and looked up at herself, looking down through the clouds. She saw herself in the clouds, then only the clouds, as her body finally dissolved away. What was left? was a small, fragile person sitting in the park. Water endlessly sprouted from her hands. She couldn't stop it. Then it wasn't water. It grew red and thick, and she knew it was blood. There was so much, she was afraid it would fill capital. The viscous fluid rolled back like a tsunami, and she went under. And woke up, cold pain. Light. Something swam into her vision and it was an age of pain before she realised it was a face. A young person, not wealthy enough to correct some obvious flaws. An overlarge nose, slightly crooked teeth. Someone in a service job then. Memories nagged at her hindbrain, whispering nameless fear in her ear. The face was speaking. Repeating something, she realised. There's no time. I know you might not, but it's all I can do. No, please, wake up. The face moved. She felt buffeting from some distance, and for a time she was a cloud again, the smooth flank of capital buffeting her, causing lightning bolts of pain to split her into pieces. Cold. The face withdrew, holding something. She felt ice clarity roll through her brain. Fingers of frost brought bright pain and sharp edges to everything. Memory flooded back. The young face spoke again. No time, no time, come on! It wasn't speaking to her. Somewhere off to one side she could see movement. A long-fingered hand moved across her vision. Not human. Dexterous simian fingers adjusted something near her face and She realised she could only see out of one eye. Half the world was blank. Ice was flowing down her body, pushing the black clouds back and leaving acid in its place. Her brain struggled to dissociate her cloud self with her reality as she hit back a scream. Whatever she lay on bumped and agony fired her synapses into forced presence. She forced something that seemed to be a question through her broken glass throat working the word around something solid in her mouth. The face looked down at her again. No time. I can't do much, but... Shit. I have to go. And the face was gone, replaced by an age-lined simian one. 
Dark eyes flicked quickly over her, and long-fingered hands signed quickly. You understand me. Delica nodded. The motion felt small, almost as though it didn't happen. The chimp saw it, though, and nodded. We're taking you somewhere, but it'll be bad. Big pain. Stay awake. Oh, it was bad. Every bump and jostle sent lightning bolt agony through everything. She gritted her teeth around what she realised was some sort of mouthpiece and suppressed screams as she fought the swaying darkness that threatened to engulf her. Forever later, she felt a cool hand on her cheek. She realised it was gently wiping away tears. The bumping had stopped a thousand years ago, or just now, or both. Her eye opened, and a different simian face was looking sadly at her. It was scarred badly with long slashes curling round half its face and head, long healed. Its dark eyes locked with hers to make sure she was watching. Sleep now. Got to wait here for a while. You're not safe yet, but we've got you. Try to relax. A few hours and... Fast, complex sign Denica didn't catch. We'll arrive and we'll take you home. Denica nodded minutely and almost immediately passed out and blinked awake into a world of pain that immediately washed over her. All she heard was screaming, and a gruff voice saying something too low to hear. Next time she surfaced, she wondered why she'd been dreaming about nothing, then wondered exactly what that meant as she fully woke up. Half the world was bright white light, and half was dark, and everything else was fire and agony. She groaned, and the light vanished almost immediately. Denica felt the familiar cold of some new drug enter her blood from somewhere. The world was simple, grey and fuzzy. Blearily, she realised her eye was open and someone was leaning over her. He held a syringe in one hand and a tiny torch in his mouth. Her first impression was of hair and explosive unkempt afro wobbled above a pair of glasses and a thick grey streaked beard framed the torch what little flesh was on view was dark and pocked by scars denica struggled to assemble these impressions into a face her brain spooled up to something near full speed as the fuzzy pain receded to tolerable levels she saw she was in a small room cabling and pipes loosely tacked to the walls she was propped up in bed. The man moved back, giving her time. She assessed him quickly. No immediate threat. He took the torch from his mouth and clicked it off, dropping it into the top pocket of a misshapen, stained overall. I'm your king. I know this isn't going to be easy to believe, but you're actually okay. For a given value of okay, anyway. At least better than you were, and not as good as you will be, eh? In time. His voice was deep and gravelly like some of the workers near the docks that had breathed too much leakage from poorly maintained airlocks. He stopped, looked at her thoughtfully and passed a syringe to a chimp by the bed. It carefully dropped the sharp instrument into a tray of several similarly used syringes and opened medical bottles and limped away out of Denica's line of sight. She forced her throat open, croaking, Where? But the dryness silenced her. Joachim held a plastic bulb to her mouth, it was an unfamiliar design, a soft plastic sphere with a sealed nipple. He nodded at her hesitation. Drink. She bit down on the nipple, rupturing it, and tasted water. It was like 
drinking pure life. Where are we? He interpreted as she sucked the bulb dry. We're approaching Galfin Island, but we're not staying. Quick stop over to refuel and pick up some other passengers, and then we're off to hope from there. He spread his hands. Behind his glasses, he watched her carefully as he spoke, assessing. She just nodded, slowly sucking the last of the water. When she'd finished, her throat felt better. She felt better. Somehow more human. Joachim was still staring at her carefully, as if waiting for something. She swallowed hard and forced out a croak. What's the deal? He paused. She knew he was calculating how much to tell her in what order. He reached a decision quickly. Soon the Hackermeister will come to see you, talk to you, offer you a choice. She just waited. Joachim nodded his head very slightly. Maybe there was less concern there now, maybe he was considering what to say. You'll be offered two ways to pay for your rescue. The one you want to take is to hand over everything from your old life. All the logins, passwords, security answers, bank details, everything. Don't hold anything back. They uh, have ways to find out if you did. Denica nodded slowly. She looked around the room. There were quite a few objects that would make decent weapons. The ceiling was low. She could probably use it for leverage. It wouldn't be fun fighting after being injured, but in a weapon-rich environment like this, she should do well. Joaquin looked sad. I wouldn't. Her eye narrowed slightly, involuntarily sizing him up. He was bulky, and that jumpsuit held all kinds of heavy objects in pockets. Some were easily big enough to be weapons. He was still watching her. There was no fear there, not even a trace. Even injured, she was still formidable, and without her bracelet she was still fast, still trained. She pushed herself up a little, and her head spun at even that small movement. But something else was wrong. She looked down at herself. The blanket that covered her legs was wrong. She went to reach out and... Flick it open, but nothing happened. She looked down further, the movement sending shooting pains through her neck and her vision momentarily blurring. Her arm ended in a bandaged stump just above where her elbow should be. She moved it experimentally and the stump moved. Tight, dull pain reported back. Her vision wavered. Joachim was there, closer. A scent that was half disinfectant and half the bitter bite of sweat billowed towards her. She forced herself to focus, flicking the blanket back with her right hand, her only hand. The left leg ended at a white bandage around the thigh. The right leg was scarred and bandaged too. Her hand went to her face and felt thick, padded bandaging over her left eye. Joaquin took her hand firmly. You're still healing. Please don't disturb the bandages. She couldn't quite catch her breath. Her chest hurt, claws gripped her throat and an invisible force pushed her back into the bedding. She was sure they were under immense acceleration, but nothing in the room moved. She smiled, laughing in the face of panic, but it came out as a choked sound. Calmness flowed through her. Looking round, she saw that Joachim had injected something into an IV line that fed under bandages on her chest. 
She felt muscles relax. Was that important? Whoever you were, you aren't. You're unspoken. You have nothing. No rights, no money, no life. Denica blinked slowly. Time stretched in a way impossible to physics, but common to life, and Joaquin simply sat by her bed and waited for her to come back. Hackermeister is coming. I suggest you give up now. The alternative isn't... Just... Don't. He left. The room was somehow much smaller. The ceiling closer. The flaking paint visible between the ancient wiring and creaking framework bulkheads was strangely compelling. The cracks stretching away, a microcosm of webs that linked events in life. The missing flakes, a testament to hinges creaked, desperately in need of oil. Human sounds entered, rustling clothes and smells like perfume, heavy, pungent smoke and beer. A force so massive the room was filled with it. Whatever entity lived at the heart of that must be powerful to command reality to bend to its will. Denica was reminded of Pater Castillo. The presence moved over Denica. A cold hand reached over and irresistibly turned her head. Fingers sharp like bones, cold like death. First impression was of a very pale woman in advanced old age. But almost immediately, Denica saw this was no frail geriatric. Her half-shaved head showed age-dimmed tattoos of glyphs and marks that even Denica's extensive monitor education couldn't place. The Hackermeister wore expensive clothing with obvious armoring and reinforced panels. Visible signs of wear and repair spoke of a long association between its owner and violence. A thin chain ran from the Hackermeister's stretched earlobe to her nose, and studs poked through the flesh over her left eyebrow. Her left eye was horrifyingly modified, red-rimmed and crusty, in the inevitable final battle between invasive cranial cybernetics and anti-rejection medications. Denica wondered what it was seeing when it focused on her. Was it worth the pain it must be causing? The Hackermeister spoke. Sure, you probably could have put up a fight if you were whole, but then again... If you were, you wouldn't need me, would you? Her voice had surprising melody. Denica imagined her singing at one of the Castillo formal evenings and nearly broke into hysterics at the absurdity. She spoke as though they were simply picking up a conversation they'd been having over tea. I see you. I see you, little girl. Wealth in your blood, in your bones. (laughs) It's mine now. Or you are. Either way, I've already won. Pick one. Bust. Studded eyebrow raised fractionally. Hackermeister waited for an answer. You've won, Denica repeated, and began reciting her Castillo logins and passwords, going through all the memorised security details of her past life. After a while... Hackermeister grinned. And now, the rest. Denica affected a frown. The Hackermeister sneered. Don't take me for a fool, girl. She held up a slate of exotic design and Denica saw the Castillo Tower pictured under the headline, 
assassination attempt failed. A video showed a crowd of reporters outside the tower as a uniformed enforcer came out through the lobby doors and made a short speech to the crowd. The audio was muted, but captions indicated that the investigation was already closed. The assassination failed thanks to the efforts of expert security staff. Denica wanted to read the rest, and also to break the terminal into a thousand pieces. I can't help but notice something of a coincidence here. Follow me on this one. Assassin fucked up a big job, and immediately after, you, a rich bitch with the body of an athlete, she licked her lips, stretching the words out, half of one, anyway, shows up on my barge, unspoken. She arched her eyebrow again, the false eye narrowed, the lens flicking open and closed. Denica shook her head and let some fear slip into her voice. It wasn't hard. I, uh, I was in a hostile takeover. Tried to move up the ladder. I was tired of waiting. Tried to make sure my boss retired early. You know how it goes. I uh, waited for him at home, but his security was more honest than... I expected. I. They. She glanced down at the blankets, pulled some of the fear back, and let some anger through, enough to squeeze a tear from her eye. She didn't have to reach far. Hackam Meister stared at her for an age. Denica again wondered exactly what that eye was seeing. Cybernetics were uncommon, certainly on Venus, where they were in a front. Disgusting off world technology. The Protectorate paid for cloned replacements for anything any taxpaying citizen needed. The science of cybernetics was purely the province of the desperate and the alien. The technology was unstable, ancient, but there was no real way to fuse organic and mechanical technology safely. Added to the unavoidable rejection, the lifetime of medications to counter that, and the inevitable loss of the enhancement, there were plenty of stories of the psychosis that came with heavy use. Denica knew that some monitors skirted the limits, and she'd heard stories. They were cautionary tales. Better hope you're telling the truth, and that what you gave me will cover my costs. The Hackermeister left. For a while the smell of beer and smoke lingered. Denneke couldn't stop the tears, and something about that scared her far more than the Hackermeister's threats. Thank you for listening to Parallel Worlds Issue 13. If you'd like to read these articles and more, why not consider becoming a patron? There's a link on our website, www.parallelworlds.uk. This issue featured articles written by Chris Cunliffe, Connor Eddles, Lewis Calvert and Thomas Turnbull Ross. It was edited by Tom Rundy. This audio edition featured the voices of Christopher Jarvis, Jamie Sugar, Kai Zen, Corrine Crompley, Peter Wotherspoon and Sarah Golding and was edited by Peter Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll. 
We'd like to thank our patrons for their support. For copies of back issues of our magazine and podcasts, visit our website at www.parallelworlds.uk. 